Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Malcolm Harris. He's a freelance writer and the author of Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials, and Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit History Since the End of History. He was born in Santa Cruz, California, attended Palo Alto High School, and graduated from the University of Maryland College Park. Many of my closest friends also graduated from University of Maryland College Park. And we are here to discuss his latest tome, which is, I think is the most accurate way to put it. And it's called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Incredibly weighty topics and an incredible time to have published this book. You were right on time with this. So Malcolm, welcome to the show. Welcome to the deep dive. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to diving in. Absolutely. You know, I use the word tome because the book is is dense. <laughs> large. Yeah. Physically large. Physically large. You can you can easily fend off an attack with this book. You can attack someone with this book um, physically. <laughs> Books are weapons. Books as weapons. But you know, many feel like they are attacked by this by this book. You know, there's there's been quite a, a bit of what's the right word to describe frenzied pushback against the the central thesis of the book. I'll say that to put it kindly. So I want to give you an opportunity to just kind of to jump in and, and give us a sense of outside of being from this area, what prompted you to tackle such a topic like Palo Alto, but more importantly, go at it in the manner in which you did? So no one had really written this history before. And I can say this full history of Palo Alto, California, from its foundation in the last quarter of 19th century up to the present day. There are a lot of histories of the Bay Area, a lot of histories of the tech industry. They'll sort of gesture at the 19th century, especially if they're talking about Stanford and Palo Alto. They'll gesture at the 19th century. But there's no one who does a like an evenly paced or a more or less evenly paced book through this whole history. And I can say that I'm not like denigrating anyone else's work, right? Like no one has claimed to have done this. And for me, I was a, I thought it was a good topic for a book, right? It was one I could sell and write. I write these books for money. This is my job. So that was uh, my first motivation. I could justify the project through my own experience, my childhood, which in the pitch was much a larger percentage of the planned project. I pulled a little bit of a bait and switch on them. So instead of talking about myself, I just did straight history. And I think doing it in this way through this whole time period, which really is the like modern American epoch from the 1870s to the present day, from Reconstruction to now, allowed me to see the story differently and in different terms than we've told it in the past, and certainly different than the way business history tells it today. And I love a good bait and switch. Uh, you know, I think that's the... <laughs> Hey, tell them what they want to hear to get you the thing that you want, right? And then by the time you're in it, too late, right? Likely the the check is cleared, exactly, or or the or the funds have been wired, right? So let them let them figure out the carnage on the other end of it. But but there is a part of 
of your biography in here. And, you know, at the very beginning, you 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 talk, I think, or you, or you mentioned very eloquently this idea of there being a haunting of, of Palo Alto, you know, through deaths that have happened there. And I guess the, the pressures of growing up in that environment, particularly when it's become more of the Palo Alto that we might know through, through myth-making. So I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, maybe expand a little bit on why that biography part of it was so compelling, even in pitch, to to kind of get the to kind of frame the story. Yeah, Palo Alto, among its many uh, you know national international reputations, is known for child suicide, for teen suicide, and that started that reputation began around the same time as I entered high school. And so in terms of my life, like that was a defining phenomenon in addition to the growth of the tech industry in Silicon Valley, were like coexisting defining phenomenon of my like childhood, my experience, my life. And I think we all do, you know, I didn't include that introduction just like as a concession to the editors or something like that. I wanted to start it that way. And I think it's because when any of us are writing or telling a story or uh, you know even just giving a straight nonfiction book we're starting from somewhere and we're starting from where we are and you have to sort of be able to look down at your feet and say all right where am i writing this how am i writing this as a precondition now you don't always have to include that in the book right that doesn't always have to be the intro but i think here it was really useful for me to say to the reader look this is where i'm coming from this is there's something different about this place that I experienced. And I want to explore that history, not just in a objective sense, but also in the subjective sense, right? That I want to investigate it for myself, as well as investigate it just as an object. And that linking those sort of things together, because these these places, they have real histories, and then they have the myth-making histories, right? And one of the things that's really interesting is how divorced the modern day Palo Alto is from the stories of indigenous who lived and, and occupied this land, right? So when when you brought up this message or or this notion about there being a, a haunting, it made me think of not that those indigenous are are literally haunting the land, but more in the sense that there are are a deep stories embedded in these places that have now been disappeared quite intentionally. And it seemed to me that the book makes a real attempt to link that very early history to the current story of not just Palo Alto as a town and region, but to California as a whole. You know, so I'm, I'm curious your your take on my interpretation of that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, for me, haunting is not like, you know, literally about ghosts or, you know, a spirits or I'm a materialist. So that's, that's not how I'm thinking about it. If other people want to think about it differently, I think they can. I think there's plenty of material to think about it in whatever spiritual tradition you're coming from, probably. But as a materialist, the way I'm thinking of it is as this presence of something that's not supposed to be there, right? The history that's supposed to have been erased continues to exist and it persists in our world and and shapes our world. And so for me, that was part of what made it really important to both start and with the Ohlone people, with Muekma, who are the indigenous ancestral title holders of the land that Palo Alto now occupies, 
and to bookend the the story that way with real people, right? Not not like a you know conceptual whatever, but uh, these people who not only existed at the beginning but continue to exist now, and that this story is is part of their story, <laughs> and it's ongoing and into the future, and that this is you know there exists a current tribal organization with over six hundred people who have genetic testing that traces them their lineage to remains in this area, you know. So real people existing now and to tell Palo Alto as a forward-looking story for me means thinking about indigenous people because they've survived and persisted on this land throughout some of the worst genocidal activities of the modern era, not just in the United States, but anywhere in the world and have continued to survive. And I think we're going to have to look to those, that, that strategies, those knowledge, that millennia of 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 knowledge built up about the area if we're going to maintain it in a sustainable way into the future. And so part of my goal was to show how short this period of Anglo-American colonization of Alta California is in the grand scheme of things, because my hope is that that allows us to think beyond that as you know the necessary condition for this land, because it's not. It's a very, very short period in the history of this land and a very destructive one. You know, the idea of the future is very embedded in, in my work when I'm not recording things like the deep dive. And it's one of my thoughts about Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, California, tech industry, all the things, right? But let's just use tech as a shorthand for all of those things is many people are making what they would say informed bets on the future. And that future often does not include the people that we've just talked about, right? The original indigenous that have occupied this land, that have kept the land and are still here, which is an important thing to underline. I think oftentimes in the stories that are told to us, you know, indigenous are almost like myths, right? Mm -hmm. They're not represented as real thriving communities. And to the extent they are, they're very siloed into very particular buckets of how we think of that experience. And regions, yeah, in American history. And regions. Yeah, California, we so rarely talk about indigenous populations of California, and particularly the Bay Area, because partly because the land is so valuable that to talk about the indigenous inhabitants and to recognize the indigenous inhabitants is to like open up the door to a threat to those property values, right? Absolutely. And a claim of ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Which is always a a major part of the of the conversation. But to continue that, that track around the, the future and who you're including, it's always been ironic to me, or maybe given the, the cast of characters that we're largely discussing, this shouldn't really be that ironic, that those who are so keen to project that they're thinking about the future know so little about the past and the present vis-a-vis creating a future that we would all want to be a part of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even their own past. I'm really struck when I hear rhetoric from tech leaderships, from tech capitalists, from Silicon Valley, we can call it. I'm really struck by their own ignorance of their own like sectoral industrial history, right? Like they don't even know back 50 years their own story. And so when I watch this CHIPS Act, for example, this recent legislation just go like careening into failure. I couldn't believe it because we'd done this exact same thing, you know, in the last century to address this same problem and it had failed. 
And they don't even, I don't think they even remembered it, you know, and maybe some of them did, but they didn't want to think about that stuff critically. And so you say like, you know, conservatives uh, felt attacked by the book or tech capitalists felt attacked by the book. They probably should. That's not wrong. But I think they also could find a lot to learn in there, even just about themselves, right? If they did like an against the grain reading uh, of this Marxist book, they could find out a lot about Silicon Valley capital. But you're right. Like I'm constantly shocked how little they want to know about themselves. And I think part of that is that they're constantly selling novelty, and being able to remember history isn't really good for the novelty business, right? You have to constantly forget the past in order to sell a future that no one's ever heard of, right? To disrupt. If you're going to reinvent the bus, you can't talk about the past of the bus, right? You have to have never heard of it. So in some ways, the ideal Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and we see this, is someone who's just like totally blank-brained at this point, who has no knowledge or memory of anything, and is able to look at the world with like baby eyes. And, the, and they like triumph, you know, they trumpet this. They're, they're very proud of their ability to do this, uh, to be this sort of blank slate and say like, oh, well, what if we did things completely differently? And so they think of ignorance as not a, a problem, but as a real asset for what they're doing. And in some ways they're not wrong. It's funny because A, I want to be on the record as saying that anything that upsets most of these assholes I'm completely comfortable with. So <laughs> their perception of, of being attacked is 100% irrelevant to to me, and I applaud it. Um, but it's, it's funny. I love your rebuke of them, but it's almost like, I'm trying to figure out the best way to put it because I love it, but I'm also like, I don't know. I think it's doing a, a disservice to babies. <laughs> o- only from the perspective of like, a, a baby looks at the world with wonder. Right, uh-huh. like they've literally never seen it. I see that the tech capitalist is aware that there's a thing called a bus. They're making a willful choice to ignore that to do some bullshit. Right, <laughs> like a baby's not doing that. I think there are two, that's two different jobs, right? And so there's the the funding layer who are really pulling the strings behind the scenes, who do have some knowledge of what they are doing, even if it's sinister, and target industries like the cab industry for destruction. And when they're disrupting things, they they tend to know a little bit more about what they're disrupting, if only because they have to like encounter the regulatory regimes. But then when you look at some of these entrepreneur guys, some like the Adam Newmans or the Travis Kalanicks, especially in this new generation, they really do look at the world with these eyes of wonder where every, I mean, someone like Adam Newman, the WeWork guy is a great example where he's like, can you imagine if people worked in a building together, wouldn't that transform the whole world? And everyone's like, you meet in like renting an office. And he's like, no, completely different than that, you know? <laughs> and his ability to do that is important, right? He's able to absorb billion, tens of billions of dollars of capital because he's able to say like, no, this is different than an office. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of an office. Yeah. <laughs> and he's doing this for Saudi Arabia's, you know, public investment fund, you know, and it's not like the Saudis don't know about an office. But they've hired this guy, right? Effectively hired this guy to do this job that involves just striking amounts of ignorance uh, uh, because it's useful. I just feel like it's all an act. Like, I, I guess I look at these folks and I look at him and I'm like, well, this is just the P.T. Barnum nature of it, right? Like, you're just sort of a well-meaning grifter, right? Like, I think some of the new agey crap I think they actually believe that bullshit, right? Like I think they're high enough and drunk enough 
to actually buy into, you know, a very common, you know, corrupted utopian hippieism, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, I've known white boys like that all my life, right? (laughs) That just kind of live in the clouds and, you know, they're like, yeah, man, we we could just play this music. I'm like, jazz? Like, you know, we already did Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Done that already, right? But the office thing is like, you know, I just... I don't give them that much credit, I guess, right? Like, I just look at them and I'm like, okay, dude, you kind of got the long hair. You're what other white people believe, right? <laughs> well, there's there's a tendency to think of the whole sector as, like, scammy, as a bunch of scammers. And there's some truth there, right? Like, some of these people are literally scam artists. like, And some of them are delusional in a way that makes them functionally scam artists. So, like, Elizabeth Holmes, did she believe that she was going to be able to invent this thing? Like, well, it doesn't really matter that much whether she believed it or not yeah. or what that means. Like, she, like committed crimes, right? I can say yeah. that now because she's been convicted of crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you could have said it before. <laughs> and it, and it, yeah, right. Yeah. She's a fraud. These facts would not have changed. She like, li- you know, literally committing fraud, right? Yeah. But I think it's also important historically to think about the real role of tech of Palo Alto, of Silicon Valley within world history, because I think they are doing something real. It's just not the thing that they say they're doing. So Uber's doing something real, but what they're doing is not, you know, connecting all people everywhere or whatever, or what like- No, no. They're trying to monopolize transportation. What they're doing is attacking wages, right? Yeah. Uh, And like, that's a real thing though. Like that's not, not, you can't say like, oh, it's just a scam. They're not doing anything. Like they're doing something. It's just not what they're saying they're doing. And it's really bad. And so the, the same thing in the 20th century, where you look at like the, the chip industry and they say like, we're going to the moon. That's our that's our branding is like, we're the guys who are going to get you to the moon and think about the future and NASA and space flight. And some people can say like, oh, this is all a scam. You know, military Keynesianism in this mid-century was just about wasting money. It didn't, it didn't actually matter what any of these things were for. They could have just shoveled it in a pit and it still would have worked. But I don't think that's the case. I think the, the real case is that they were building nuclear missiles and the nuclear missiles were really important. It's not that they weren't doing something important. It's just what they were doing was securing the American empire, which is different than what they were branding it as, which is more like the hippie stuff you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that's what makes the story interesting, right? Because even using the language that we're using, right, American empire, most people do not think of the United States as an empire. The United States, and I'm talking about just the rank and file. Your listeners? No, not my listeners. (laughs) But I'm saying like the rank and file person that's walking around does not attach nefarious purposes to the United States. The United States are the good guys, right? Most Americans think of the United States as the good guys. They do not question the United States and it's bullshit. It doesn't. They don't, right? I don't know. I think there's this, like this, we saw this with Trump, right? Where he would do it both ways, where he'd say, America's the greatest. And then when there was that great quote, when someone was attacking Putin, where he says, oh, you think we're not bad? Like, you, we think we don't have killers? Like, we have killers. We we kill people. So obviously, if you look at a, on a world scale, people know about the American empire and understand America's role in the world, right? You go to any other country and you ask about America. And I think like, 
maybe not everyone, right? But I think a lot of Americans have some understanding of that to some degree. And they flip it as like, yeah, we're an empire. Yeah, we can invade Iraq and take the oil if we want because America's great. But what they don't do, I don't think, is connect Silicon Valley or this the tech industry or any of this stuff to any of that at all. So when I talk about the nuclear missile, I don't think people think about Palo Alto when they think about the nuclear missile. I don't think they think about the tech industry when they think about the nuclear missile. Uh, even though the first generation of silicon chips, the, the defining object of this mm-hmm. sector, is entirely going into the nuclear missiles. And if you look at nuclear missiles composition by value, it's really the electronics that are the most expensive part, right? Like that's what really made the missile age was not that they invented explosives or that they even they, they invented atomic explosives, but that they developed the electronics able to you know create this mutually assured destruction system. And that came out of Palo Alto and was funded uh, and produced by by capital that was invested in Palo Alto. And so part of my goal in, in writing this book was attaching those two things, the idea of Palo Alto and this whole history with the American empire, with the 20th century. Because in our tendency to forget about this past, we're constantly like bumping up the start of the relevance of Palo Alto. So it used to be the chip age and then it was like the personal computer and then it was the internet. And it's like now people can't remember before Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, Silicon Valley started mattering around Facebook. And that's not true. You got to go back to like the radio age. You're like, we really got to look at this whole history because it's really important. And I think, you know, in in my own sort of irreverent way, what I'm trying to get at is, and, and that's why I wanted you to, I'm glad that you included this kind of history of California, right? Because I think California has a, a mythos all its own, right? Mm-hmm. It is frontier, you know, kind of the last stop before the mm-hmm. ocean, you know, it is Hollywood, you know, it is the gold rush if you go back into the 1850s, right? It's the, sort of the place where Don Draper doesn't stop driving, right? He When he mm-hmm. gets to California, even in Mad Men, right? He's the cynical ad guy. The only place Don is, if, if anyone out there listening is a fan of the show, the only place Don Draper is ever honest is in California, right? So in, in the mythos of how we think of California, it's this place where you, it's just the future, right? You didn't have shit, went hit, head west, young man, mine for mm-hmm. gold, right? And I think TAC has embodied a lot of that myth-making, right? Oh, yeah. Totally. And the way we think about it then is, yeah, head west, right? We think of American expansion as east to west and that California is the end of that process. But that's not at all how it happened. And so in the mid-19th century, California, as it first enters the United States, especially before the Transcontinental Railroad, is literally an overseas colony and then an overseas, functionally an overseas colony once it becomes a state. And so part of this trying to think about it in a, in a global context was thinking about, you know, California is more like Brazil, like California is more like South Africa, California is more like Australia in terms of the trajectory of its history than it is like New York um, or Florida or something, you know, there, mm-hmm. that it has a 19th century colonial history. And then the sort of stuff that's happening in California starts to make more sense when you think about like, oh, who are these capitalist class that ends up developing in this place on the periphery? 
And how are they different from the rest of the capitalist class? Like, what is the labor relations that get produced um, in this like peripheral colony? And how does that relate to the profits that people think that they can make there, right? And so California isn't just like the frontier in this like expansionist manifest destiny type sense. It's like the colony where you go make your fortune, right? In the yeah. same way that people did in the 19th century in a lot of places and that you could speculate on and settle. And we don't think about that because then we incorporate the Midwest into the United States after that. And then it looks like, oh, you'd colonize east to west and California is at the end and therefore it's the end. But that's not the like historical role that it yeah. played. And so displacing it from the sort of like univocal US history of colonization into a global history of colonization in the 19th century uh, was one of my real goals with the book. Yeah. And and it's a it's a, a fascinating way to kind of look at the evolution of the state because I now I just keep coming back to this notion of California as anyone can project whatever they want to onto California in a way. Right? When I look at the way the media thinks about California. California is the place for the conservative idiots to project all of their fears, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want your state to be like California with that Nancy Pelosi and you know all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff and you know we had one of the first national like that I know the recall, right? Sure, Schwarzenegger. Famously, right? Schwarzenegger recall. Oh, I remember. I was there. Right? And I think, again, that was another one of these conservative playbooks, right? Like if they can pull mm -hmm. this bullshit off in California, so-called liberal state, then they can do it anywhere, right? And you start to see this these attacks, right? So I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on California as blank slate projection for either liberals as a place to kind of like, it all works so well in California, or that damn California filled with homeless druggies. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny how you get both, right? You get now you get conservatives who live in San Francisco and complain about it all day. Yeah. And the, I like to think of them as the, like the, you know, the Oscar Wilde portrait of Dorian Gray complaining like everything everything about my life is perfect. I just can't get this portrait to look right. And like, why can't this portrait look right? It's like that's what's keeping everything the way it is. Like yeah. you are the cause of this. Like you can't complain about yourself but they can and and do constantly. And again, I think it just shows how valued ignorance is in that community because it's almost like who can display the most ignorance about the <laughs> the, the politics of their place. Yeah, um, that that's like a sublime power that I can just like erase any sort of like knowledge about this place and just like force my aesthetic preferences and that that should control politics. But we don't think about California as having like a post-colonial political culture that is dominated by like uh, capital through this referendum, anti-democratic referendum process, where if you give a million dollars, you can like trick people in voting whatever yes or no question you want on the ballot <laughs> that has been used by, you know, white vigilante forces to force their view of the state on other people who live there. In really aggressive ways, like that people in who live in California know about in living memory about you know, like English only ballot initiatives and stuff like that, yeah. where they're using this referendum process, this vigilante uh, grassroots heritage 
in order to attack uh, other elements of the polity, right? In order to divide people. And that goes back to the 19th century. That goes back to the earliest mining camps where the, they forged their sense of collective identity by excluding Mexicans, by excluding Chinese people, by excluding the French, by <laughs> excluding Argentinians, you know? This was, uh, California was from the beginning uh, a laboratory for the production of whiteness within the American project. And, you know, I, I had underlined, it's, I'm glad that, you know, we got to that point because I, I wrote it, I jotted down here in my notes that there's this notion that the wealth creates the other, right? That as these groups kind of form their coalitions in order to extract, there has to be an, an other that's projected against that, right? And you know, some of some of my references are are the ones that like listeners might more remember. You know, a, again, a, a a figure like Ronald Reagan can come out of mm-hmm. California. Oh yeah, right. Again, something you wouldn't. The first thought wouldn't be him, right? But so much of the fervor and pushback that that kind of put him on the national stage was against the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. right? They had a lot of open open carry gun laws there until brothers started carrying guns. <laughs> then Absolutely. we got to change that, right? So this othering that that seems to be so much a, a part of the historical story of California, it persists today. And and I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of connect some of those dots because it's it's done very skillfully in the book. Yeah, we think of the when we say tech as in the tech industry, we think about like Moore's law and the increasing density of circuits, right? Like like those are the kind of tech innovations we're thinking. We're thinking of automation technologies or that kind of thing. But for tech and for its whole history, they've been at least as interested in labor efficiencies through cost reduction. And segregating the labor market has been a enduring strategy for how do you get more with less is that you split up groups of workers and and target them against each other. You give some people more rights than others. And this goes back to, you know, the 19th century and Herbert Hoover was trained in this activity at Stanford University and goes and exports it around the world as a mining manager goes to South Africa and says, you know what I learned in California, here's how we're going to get more out of these guys for less. We're going to import a group of workers from China and we're going to separate them from the Italians and we're going to crack down on everyone's wages and make everyone work harder. And that's tech, right? That's a technology and racialization and not just racialization, but also citizenship, division on on language, on national origin that are distinct but intertwined with racialization. These are techniques of labor market segregation that are very, very effective and that we see ongoing, like you said, into today when we talk about like H-1B visas, right? This is a labor market segregation, a tiered labor market effort that makes it hard for workers to organize and attacks wages. And if you think of like gig workers and gig working as a distinct kind of labor relation, but also as a technology that comes out of tech. But again, that's not new. Before Silicon Valley was the center of uh, gig work, it was the center of temp work. And if you ask gig workers about, you know, the gig work companies about what is temp work and what is your relation to temp work, 
they might say, what is temp work? Like they don't have to know that history in order to get billions of dollars in investment, right? They don't have to be scholars of the labor market. They just have to tell a compelling story about how they're going to integrate some disruptive uh, change into an attack on labor, into attack on labor share. And they, they're pretty good at that. Yeah. Giving people more freedom, right? You can you can drive when you want, right? You can deliver what you want, all under the guise of freedom. <laughs> but again, we don't think of the, the, the tech as, especially racialization, we don't think of that in the production of whiteness, we don't think of that, that as a technology coming out of California in the 20th century. But it definitely is. And you see like Supreme Court cases coming out of California about like, are Japanese people white? Are East Indians who identify as Aryans white? Are people from Syria white? And that this is totally intertwined with eugenic research going on at the universities. It's totally intertwined with the agricultural labor market and the, the market for property ownership. And so like people from Asia have to be excluded from whiteness, from citizenship, from America, from diff at different levels uh, throughout this history as an economic tool, right? As a way to secure whiteness as a privileged position. And at different times, right? The Absolutely. Different times and, and different actors, but the, the goals tend to always codify around, around these concepts. And I'm, I'm glad that efficiency came up because it, it seems like so much of what is heralded as an innovation is largely around the efficiency of of time, mm. right? How do we measure a worker's ability to do X number of tasks, get from point A to B, closing the last mile, right? The last digital mile mm -hmm. has become one of the, I would say from a consumer perspective, right? The, the technology that we all use, one of the more prevailing recent notions, right? Recent being the last 10, 15 years, right? Sped up by the pandemic, right? The more we're locked in our homes, depending on primarily um, black and brown people to scurry packages around and give us mm -hmm. our Uber Eats, determines how comfortably we can survive something like the pandemic. So I'm curious your thoughts on, despite all the, the high-minded rhetoric, how innovation has become distilled to something, you know, so so basic when you cut to the chase with it. That's a great question. So in the book, I talk about the real dream of early web integrated business. And I talk about this company, Webvan. And the premise of the company, Webvan, was that they were going to totally transform the grocery industry with the internet, where you would go online, shop for groceries, and they'd be delivered to your house. And that the efficiencies from this whole system, you wouldn't need grocery stores anymore. <laughs> you don't need the lights that are in the aisles of the grocery store. You don't have to stock the shelves in the same way. You don't need checkouts. You know, they were imagining all these efficiencies through tech and that the, everyone would gain from these efficiencies. That not only would the food be higher quality, but it would cost less money. It would be delivered to your door and the workers would be paid better. And they affected, they lured workers out of grocery unions, you know, butchers unions. The grocery sector was significantly unionized in the 20th century in the United States. They lured people, Webvan lured people out of those jobs with promises of uh, this future gig. They were going to be very well trained. They would have stock options, even just like drivers themselves. They would, you know, be using uh, Palm Pilots and other productivity enhancing things in order to improve their safety and you know, all, all these 
web efficiencies. And then the Y2K bubble pops, these companies collapse, and people are saying, you know, grocery delivery, never going to happen. Never going to happen. You're never going to have internet grocery delivery. There's this great, like, Harvard, Harvard Business School puts out this, like, case study of Webvan that says the grocery system's efficiencies are too great. There's no way you can beat them. You're never going to have internet grocery delivery. Never going to happen. But then suddenly, you know, again, people are very good at forgetting this kind of stuff. They try again. And this time it works. But how does it work? What changes? And I, there's a, an article written by a guy who worked at Webvan thinking about how they could succeed and how other companies, the new generation of delivery companies like Instacart or whatever, were succeeding or at least getting financing, even though this industry had been such a public failure. And the answer was, well, we're not going to invest in worker training. We're not going to invest in building infrastructure. We're going to find our our efficiencies by attacking the wage, by attack labor costs. And, you know, we think about efficiency as being able to do the same activity with less and that that necessitates, you know, more efficient technology or something like that. But if at the end of the day, you know, I punch every worker in the face and take five bucks out of his pocket, that's doing the same thing with less, right? <laughs> right? Like that's another way to do it. You can... You can derive efficiencies simply by attacking the wage. There are limits to that, right? Eventually people will starve, but that's sort of their problem, right? Like that's not your problem anymore. And so brushing up against those limits is preferable to brushing up the limits of, oh, shoot, I can't pay these guys anymore. And now my company's bankrupt because I was going to pay people every delivery driver 50 bucks an hour, which is the inflation adjusted. It's probably more than 50 bucks now, but the yeah. inflation adjusted costs that Webvan was looking at for their delivery was 50 bucks an hour, including benefits. And, you know, it was, a, it was a real job. They were competing with union wages and their projection was everyone's going to gain from these technologies. And the solution was we're going to pay people, you know, one tenth of that. We're going to pay people as little as we can possibly. We're going to attack the minimum wage. And that's been very successful. So once again, like, it's been successful, again, in, in attracting a lot of capital and not necessarily in making profits per se. Yeah, because they're still engaged in this process, but it's it attracted a whole lot of capital and capital sees this as a potential growth area at a time when it doesn't have a lot of potential growth areas. It's going to invest in attacking this wage through these technologies or as a technology, right? So once again, it's not that they're not doing something. It's not that it's a scam. It's that they're doing something different than what they're telling people they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the the downward pressure on labor prices and benefits is never something that's going to um, <laughs> rankle the feathers of, of those who, like you said, don't actually care about those issues, right? The downward pressure on, on labor is, is expected in, as part of their libertarian mythos, right? And I want to talk a, a little bit about the, the general, what I call techno-optimism, right? This idea that we can solve these big problems. And there's a, a gentleman that I had on the show, um, Fred Turner, and he's written a, a, a couple of books, The Democratic Surround Being Run, the other being From Counterculture to Cyberculture. Really interesting dude. So, so shout out to Fred if he's if he's listening to the show. He's cited in there. He's in Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an amazing... I had a really fun conversation with him, let's put it that way, as, as having been a fan of his work way before I actually got a chance to, to interview him. And he links very much that, again, that spirit of 
the optimism that comes out of kind of as when we were joking about Adam Newman, sort of the the hippie counterculture of the 60s becomes this cyber culture, again, a dated word, optimism of the near present to now. And I'm curious, as you've put together this story, you've done exhaustive research, Fred's in the book, you know, do you see the tide turning against that sort of optimism? Are, is the general media, press, populace getting more hip to these stories in your mind, or do you not see that as the case? Well, I think as in so many things uh, with Silicon Valley, we see these cycles because it's a, a place made around booms and busts and like a bubble machine and hype cycles. And so, yeah, we're at a sort of a low point, I think, in some ways of people's opinion about the industry. If you go back a year or two, they were, you know, proclaiming these tech guys as gods, right? Like literally like Elon Musk, people are like worshiping him in some kind of cult. And that's still happening, but now it's happening a little bit less. Yeah. He's a terrible human being, by the way. But if you <laughs> but if you look back at the cycles, you know, I talk about in the book this movie Antitrust that comes out in 2000 where Tim Robbins plays very clearly plays a version of Bill Gates as a serial killer where he's going around like literally murdering people. And this is a guy who at the time is the richest man in the world in a country that worships wealth. And he's very successful in this industry that is the future. And everyone hates him. He's a serial killer, right? Like nobody likes Bill Gates. Not like Bill Gates was worshipped yeah. as a hero or something. And you go back further, one, one rotation back further, and people are bombing uh, Hewlett's house, right? You'd be, you know, Hewlett and Packard are getting chased around the Bay Area by student rebels who want to like kill them. And that was people's opinion of tech at the time, right? Is like, let's get these guys and beat them up. So if you think about things in a like long tendency, mm -hmm. people are getting much, much more comfortable with these sort of tech oligarchs and the role they're playing in the economy over time, I think. And we've seen a, an increased role, certainly for Silicon Valley and Palo Alto and that that the tech sector in the national and the global economy. And now you see them like moving into roles as prime defense contractors. So I, I don't know. There is this like tech lash, this talk about tech lash. But if you look at it sort of zoomed out bird's eye tendency, I think uh, they're certainly getting more powerful. And, you know, power concedes nothing without a, a strong demand. So when I look at these spaces and I think about, again, the stories that they tell, the way in which they, they craft mythology, and I, I look around and I see very few people who look like myself, very mm -hmm. few women, not that there aren't any, but they're very few. And it's not making an invitation. Like I'm not doing the Nixonian, you know, how we fix this is black capitalism, right? Like what's wrong with it is that we're not including black people in the exploitation. Rather, what I'd like to think about is, you know, how do we build different systems that are actually inclusive to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. Like not to extract, but you bookended with like the indigenous. We've talked about that, right? Clearly different ways of viewing the world, right? How sustainable are these models if we are not taking into account vast majorities of the world's population that don't think in this way? 
I think that's the the problem to which Palo Alto is in its way a solution. That the the problem that Palo Alto is supposed to address is the problem of equality, of a world where everyone is equal. And how do you maintain inequality in a world where everyone knows about each other, in a world where there's a white minority and decolonizations on the march? You know, how do you maintain your perch? And that was a task that the ruling classes of the world, not just white people, you know, because I talk about the, you know, Idi Amin regime in Uganda and its role to Silicon Valley, right? So we have like post-colonial ruling classes developing this relationship with Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley developing a relationship with them as a solution to the problem of worldwide equality, as a solution to the problem of anti-colonialism on the march. And that has been combined with, you know, nuclear weapons, combined with the ability to flood whatever country turns a little bit pink with guns and money used to kill people, uh, has been very effective. And so much of that has been channeled out of Palo Alto, not just the nuclear missiles, but also like signals technology. Signals technology has been very important and was very controversial during the Cold War about the exporting of signals technology to dictatorships that were using Silicon Valley tech to maintain their hold, right? To oppress uh, people throughout the world and to suppress this, this worldwide movement, right? what the effectively decolonization and economic democracy. And so the, the call that I make at the end of the book to return Palo Alto, to end this project of Palo Alto and return the land and the money to the Moak Mo'oloni, who are acknowledged as the ancestral title holders by Stanford, which is the institution that I'm calling on, is a way about pulling that Jenga piece in this construction, right? It's like Palo Alto is a key, not just to the, the local or the regional sector, but to the inequality throughout the world. It's been a solution to this problem. And really the problem, as Du Bois puts it, of the color line of the 20th century of like, how do you maintain white power in the face of black power, right? How do you maintain the privilege of skin in a world where everyone knows about each other? And so we're still trying to, you know, Palo Alto didn't, Palo Alto is an answer to that question, right? It has a relation to that question. Again, it's just not the one we want. And so that like, as a mechanism, it's not, you're right, it's not going to get us where we want to go. And that you can't say like, oh, we need more venture capital investment in black owned businesses is not a solution to this problem that is not a problem. It is a solution, right? We need a solution to their solution. And we do need investment and capital in the ideas and communities that come from people that are not in these spaces, right? I, I do think that is part of the gamble, right? Because one of the things I've always offered is that these folks are making bets on the future, right? They're saying to themselves, you know what we need? We need cabs are outmoded, you know, to use the Uber and Lyft model. What we need is a world where we can share cars, right? Because that's the mm -hmm, that's the thing, right. right? Cars are idle and it's all this production that's out there. We need to get them from being idle to moving. And I asked, I was having another conversation a couple of weeks ago, I was recording, and I was like, what if our future isn't whether a car is shared or it's automated, right? That's the other big thing. Like we're going to automate the rider rider experience to there being no cars at all, mm -hmm. right? Like if we're, if we're thinking in a radical way about what innovation would look like, maybe that's a carless future period, right? 
those are not the ideas that are being <laughs> capital is flowing, right? Because it's not coming from the predominant group to which capital goes. And one of the things I think about is if capital is going to find itself, and, and that looks like a lot of ways. When I say capital, I'm talking about resources in, in a number of ways, not just cash, mm-hmm. but cash never hurts. I got to pay my mortgage <laughs> than everybody else. We have to surface ideas from other populations that just don't think this way. And that's not happening now. <laughs> no, instead, we, I mean, one of the premises of the book is that capital is exhausting, that it exhausts uh, natural resources and it exhausts human resources. And so when you look at capitalists and you'd say, tech capitalists, you know, what's your solution to the future? This system seems like it's destroying the world. What's your solution? Half of them will tell you, let's go find a new world. You know, I've got, I've got a great idea. Let's go live on another planet, which is ridiculous. You know, no one who studies space actually believes that we're going to live on Mars. Or they say, you know, we're oh, we're going to upload all our brains to a computer. Or they give you all these like, you know, apocalyptic, yeah. you know, sort of like cult solutions, right? Yeah, singularity and stupid stuff. We have to find somewhere else to exploit or some other way to dig up something somewhere, okay? Because that's the only solution they can come up with. And that's inherent to the system, right? We can't like blame them from that anymore that we can blame a fish for swimming or whatever. And so we need to stop thinking about it in a something about our situation as one where we need to convince these people that they're in trouble and that their interests lie with our interests. And that's something I think we can really learn from the new left in the 60s and something I write about in the book where they're discovering that like, look, you're not going to be able to convince a napalm company to stop making napalm. Like that that's what they do. That's their job. And if they stop doing it, someone else will start doing it. And that's what they'll tell you. And they understand that. And that's how they understand themselves. And so you're not dealing with people who have access to reason. You're dealing with an an unreasonable system. And once we recognize that the system is unreasonable, then we can stop trying to reason with it and start thinking strategically about how we change it in a way that actually accomplishes the human flourishing goals, as well as uh, the sustainability of the earth that we need to accomplish, right? How do we get people in houses? That has nothing to do with making profit off buildings or the construction industry or any of that. How do we make sure everyone's got a good place to live? Totally different question. Decent schools, healthcare, all those is clean water, clean air. Clean air, access to air that will not infect you with a virus and kill you is pretty important, right? And like that doesn't have anything to do with like profits for testing company or profits for the pharmaceutical industry or whatever. Those are the essentials, right? I will sometimes blame fish for swimming. Be like, (laughs) so arrogant fish as someone who swims very poorly. (laughs) I'm like, screw you, fish. <laughs> I don't want people to get me wrong, right? It's I think about that Brecht poem where it's like, you know, I don't blame you. I still got to hit you with this shovel, right? <laughs> you know, like, I, like I, yeah, I, it's not your fault, but like, you still got to be stopped, right? Yeah, so we got to take the personal out. Like, we're okay taking the personal out of it, you know? And so when they say like, look, it's not personal, then we need to be able to say, it's not personal for us either. <laughs> you yeah. know, you can quit anytime. You put the guns down and come over here. You know, you can quit anytime. It's not personal. Uh, at the same time, that's not going to convince us to stop, right? If what you're doing is impersonal, then that's how we got to treat you. And since we talked about one of my former co-hosts and partners in crime for a previous show, Michael Brooks used to say, be hard on systems, be kind to people. I'm paraphrasing, but that was one of his sayings, right? That we know we don't need to be out here attacking each other. We need to be focused on these systems, right? 
And then when someone says, you know, I'm just a part of the system, then you can say, all right, if you want to relate to me like a person, you know, if you don't want to be a person to me, if you're saying I'm not a person, you can't talk to me uh, on this ground of reason, you know, you can't convince me because I'm just doing my job. Then you say, okay, then I, then you go from being, uh, you know, soft on people to hard on systems, right? And systems are, when you get down to it, people. Um, and it doesn't mean not any particular people. It's not a personnel issue. But if those people want to stand there in those shoes, then they they shouldn't be surprised what happens. Yeah. You know, that that old, you know, I'm just doing my job and just part of the system sounds a lot like I was just following orders. And it is. And it's like, all right, well, you know, and we heard we heard that for a long time. I was just following orders. <laughs> and it's not a good excuse when people want you to pay the price. Uh, it's just not. Not at all. You know, and and the book is a really incredible piece of work. And you know, I'm going to highlight another thing about the book that I really enjoyed, the cover. I know, it's nice, right? Greg Kulik. Shout out, Greg. Yeah, I'm not someone that can't judge a book by his cover. Though I think people judge books by cover all the time, right? And I'm on the record as saying I primarily choose my wine by the label, you know? I think we all do. Um, but I, I really love the cover because it reminded me I don't know if this was on on purpose. We've not talked about this, but it reminded me of like those old like music festival posters that you would see with like Jefferson Airplane and all that kind of stuff from like kind of the again counterculture '60s that you would see in like Asbury Heights and all these kind of things. Like I'm a big music guy, so when I saw the cover, it just it reminded me of that. I don't know if it's a homage in some way or anything, but I was like, oh, this is a cool fucking cover. <laughs> No, that was definitely, got a shout out Greg Kulik because he's the guy who designed it and it is such an awesome design. And I still don't know how the printers like got it to look so, the colors so vibrant because it looks so awesome. Especially the final card cover version is unbelievable. But yeah, he was definitely inspired by those posters. But also when we were talking about it, I was saying like, you know, you also want some sharpness in there because it's not just about the 60s. It's not a, just a counterculture thing. I also want to talk, you know, or to visually reference like, CDs or like the the screensavers of the 90s. Yeah. And so there are like a lot of different, there's some sharp lines in there as well as the fuzzy and like the, I think it ended up representing the book really well for something that is just this like abstract color yeah. thing. And, and I think it's cool that people have responded to it in that way that they like, it makes sense to people, even though if it, it's not like pictures of eight white guys from Silicon Valley, which is the, the, sort of the standard cover for these books is like, let me put seven capitalists here and like, oh, they all look the same. Like, oh, well. Um, and even some of the illustrations of the coverage of the book tends to look like that. And I think that's that's kind of funny. I remember when when the book reached, um, was first out in New York Times at a piece and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they suck. So this is, a, this is good. I can say whatever I want. I know you you have to be more diplomatic. I don't have to say any, I can do anything, you know, um, as someone who's read the book and reads quite a bit, I can honestly say that not that none of us are above critique. So I'm not making that <laughs> point, but I, I honestly don't feel these people read the books. You know, my, my assessment is that they have an agenda. And so these become foils. So I encourage, and my listeners are astute, smart people, so they can ignore stuff like that. But the book is truly an interesting and engaging study of a state and a region and an ideology that I think is critically important. And um, those who want to boil it down to more simple, oh, it's 
Marxist. Oh no, they're idiots. So fuck those. It people. is Marxist. <laughs> yeah, but they're using it as a as an attack. But that's good. You know, <laughs> it's Marxist, and I'm not sorry. Exactly. Exactly. They're using it in a way that I don't think we're using it. Let's put it that way. I want to get to the final two segments of the show. The first one being off the dome and off the dome, is just an opportunity for us to share just a, a couple of literally the first thing that, that comes to mind. So in that spirit, when we think about these, you know, mustachioed villains, even though many of them don't have mustaches, but it doesn't matter what the era I always picture someone with a monocle, top hat, and twirling mustache, right? Like, they're the villain. Who should be the one that we're keeping an eye on for, like, they mean us most harm? (laughs) I have my own opinion, but I'm curious as to yours as someone who's studied this deeper. I give Peter Thiel a lot of credit at the end of the book for sort of being, knowing more about the system and embracing his role in this American imperial system. But I think people sort of know about, about Peter Thiel a little bit. He's like, people know he's a bad guy or whatever. Uh, the one that really freaks me out is Larry Ellison, who's the the head of Oracle and who like- Yeah, on his fucking yacht, man. <laughs> took a real hard right-wing turn. But like Oracle's a CIA contractor. Like he's been a significant CIA intelligence contractor for many decades now. And he had like no one, no capitalist is better connected in the intelligence community than that guy. And like- He's like an election denier and stuff. Like he went all the way right wing and he's about as rich as any, like there's, you know, once you get up there, they're about the same level. Like no one's really like qualitatively richer than him. He's about as rich as anyone. And he's sort of been flying under the radar a little bit, even though he's a like super ostentatious guy, which also freaks me out. So he really, uh, keep an eye on Larry Ellison. He's a scary guy and he's been increasingly scary since 9-11. Yeah. When he really came out and was like, let me make a national ID card system for everybody. And like, I don't care about libertarianism. I'm a patriot uh, and I want to make a bunch of money as a government contractor. So Oracle is one of those that because of what it, it's not consumer facing in the same way that people don't associate it with tech or whatever. But that guy is a menace. Yeah, he's a he's a nut job. But his daughter is like all into like movies, right? Like, you know, she's like a big movie production company, right? They always find a way. <laughs> to like whitewash the bullshit. Um, my other question, California, and you might not want to give this one up, but I've spent quite a bit of time in the state. I had an opportunity to actually drive the state two summers ago and kind of do like the quintessential top-down American road trip. And I was surprised at, you know, once you get off them coast, that that shit is not cute. <laughs> Like there's a, there's a, it's rural. Yeah, it is. It is rural and not very black friendly. No. Any, anytime I'm, I'm driving around, I got to make a stop and I see like a Eagle looking at me angry on a t-shirt, <laughs> you know, that kind of side uh-huh. Eagle kind of giving you that look, you know, that don't tread on me. Look, you looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not comfortable. These are not the, the rest stops I'm comfortable in. But having said all that, what is the gem of California for you that people don't think about, but that you would say, you know what, if you get a chance to come here, you should definitely check this out. I still really like Santa Cruz uh, in terms of like places that have maintained California vibes. I mean, you can still get some of that in Berkeley for sure. I still like going to the East Bay, but Santa Cruz is in terms of the California 
that I grew up with, what is like least changed in a sinister way in terms of areas that I know, which again is a pretty like high bar. <laughs> like those places have all changed in very, very sinister ways. Like San Francisco is a creepy, messed up place. Yeah, downtown Santa Cruz is tight. Like I could still see myself living in Santa Cruz in a way that I don't see for a lot of other places that I know in California. Absolutely. I, I second the notion on on Santa Cruz. It was actually when I was driving and I left San Francisco, Santa Cruz in my first stop. Nice. And um, had a, a great day there. I took a, there was a picture I got, like, you know, there's an amusement park and all this kind of stuff. And it looked just like the cover of Under the Table and Dreaming by Dave Matthews, my favorite. <laughs> with the twirling. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah it was you. like the perfect, like, I, it was a complete accident I got this picture, but it literally looked like that. So I co-sign you on that one. Is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> that's my last off the dome question is there a sequel to palo alto well i i definitely gotta write another book because uh i gotta eat so eventually there'll be another one i don't think uh, i don't have a tendency to repeat myself in projects and so i hope that the next one will be different but related so i i think i've got multiple different but related projects the same universe let's say maybe not uh sequels okay I'll, I'll take i'll take the universe as an answer to sequel um i want to get us now to the final segment which is the drop and the drop is just an opportunity to share anything at all with listeners could be a show a book piece of music whatever doesn't matter i typically go first and and my drop is an as an album called wanderlust and the artist is um duran bernard and just a really charismatic, uber-talented young artist. He he recently did a Tiny Desk concert that was just absolutely amazing. So I'll, I'll have links to all that on in the show notes. But I think if you're looking for like a good listen of a young artist, a younger artist that is really making some soulful, eclectic, interesting music, I definitely say give give a listen to Wanderlust. Um, again, the artist is Duran Bernard. And I'll have links to all that good stuff in the show notes. So you are up. What is your drop? Can I do a book and a movie? Can I do Can I do two? Yeah, you can do. Drops can be more than one thing. All right, sweet. We got some new stuff coming out, so it's good. Christina Sharp's new book, Ordinary Notes. People should definitely check this out. It's like a very quick poetic read because it's done in these sort of like aphorisms almost, uh, like short pages. But Tribute in a Way to Her Mother, really amazing book that people should definitely check out in stores now, I believe. Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp. And then starting nationwide on Friday, I'm not sure, I guess I'm not sure where this is going to air. Hopefully, uh, when's this going to air? Sometime around there. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I record and release, so this is going to be in a few weeks. <laughs> in theaters now, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the movie. A strange uh, adaptation of Andreas Malm's book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, turns it into a like fun heist film about actually blowing up a pipeline that I think listeners will enjoy. So they should go see that in the theater, make sure their dollars are counted towards the gross of such movies so that they keep making them. Absolutely. And that's a good book, by the way. So <laughs> go. now see the movie. <laughs> exactly. See the movie. Malcolm, those are two great drops. Thank you for those. Thank you for taking the time to be on the deep dive. The book, again, is I think is a must read for anyone who's trying to make sense of a lot of converging stories, trends, perspectives. I can't 
emphasize it enough. Like you said, I think it teaches us about where we are and where we're going. So again, thanks for being on the show and thanks for writing Power Hold It's a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. Look forward to, to coming back when I got the sequel. Absolutely. Take care. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.